Welcome to episode three of Ben and Luke's Excellent Adventures, where we are looking at the movie Rushmore. Um, as in every episode, Luke here has selected a movie uh, that has been popular or had critical acclaim that I have not seen because I don't watch movies, and he made me watch it. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about Rushmore and why you made me watch it? Sure. So, Rushmore is a film by Wes Anderson. It was one of his first real uh, uh, major films. And Rushmore is one that I have loved ever since the first time I saw it. This film is, it's funny, it's incredibly well-directed. The, the framing, the mise-en-scene, which is a phrase that Ben probably has no idea what it means, all of it's fantastic. Um, Rushmore is one of, one of the films that I would say is just absolutely perfect. Speaking of French, a really quick follow-up from episode number one. Um, we talked about... Casablanca, and there's a scene there where the uh, the German soldiers and the the French people are singing at each other. And my interpretation of that was just two people singing patriotic songs at each other. But that that French song has the line about watering the fields of France with the blood of their enemies, and that's a lot more threatening than I thought it was in the first time I watched when I saw that. <laughs> what can I say? Old enemies. <laughs> Pretty much every European country has just tried to completely murder each other off the face of the planet at least a few times. So, <laughs> unless you're Switzerland, but uh, you said what mise en mise en plates, mise en flats, everything in its plates. That's a cooking thing. No, no, no. Just, just don't hurt yourself. I'll, I'll translate it to German later for you. But Rushmore, tell me, Ben, what was your what was your take on it? Well, it entertained me for an hour and a half, I guess. So, I, I mean, I liked watching it, I guess. But unlike um, the other two movies, I didn't, I didn't feel like at the end of the movie that it had taken me somewhere. Except, you know, it's like watching an episode of Seinfeld. Which is fair. It's a, it's a film that's definitely entertaining and fun and quirky. It's not necessarily the most deep or meaningful film ever. Wes Anderson's films are kind of interesting in the sense that they are largely uh, impressive because of the direction style and because of the setting that he chooses and the dialogue that he chooses. They're never films that have a whole lot to say about society, but they're really, really, really well-made escapism. Yeah, I definitely, definitely had fun watching it. But some of the things you'll notice with Wes Anderson films, and there are a few more on the list, but everything he does, he does a very good job of framing up everything. Um, all the stuff is very symmetrical. It's all very planned out. It did seem like a very, I guess, I guess tight. It seemed well put together. Which, as, a, as someone who doesn't know anything about movies, is a compliment that means nothing coming from me. It's true, though. He's very, very deliberate about everything he does in his films. Um, that's part of the reason why critics love talking about them so much is just because of the fact that they'll never get caught just making a mountain of a mo- out of a molehill. Everything that he does is so deliberate that anything you choose to talk about is something that he was intending to put up there. <laughs> um, but yeah, a lot of the um, a lot of the interactions between the characters I enjoyed, even though uh, that kid is is the I don't know I never remember anybody's name. The main character kid is the definition of someone who thinks they're hot shit, but he's like just 
such a he's in such a small pond. I feel like his his world that he puts himself in is not a big world. It's true. I mean, the the film is so full of dialogue that's completely and totally self serious, and yet the film is still somehow managing to be self aware. <laughs> and there, uh, another movie where there was a quote in it that I'd heard before, but I never knew it was from this movie, or if I did, I forgot it. the The line. I wrote hit, hit play and directed it, so I'm not sweating it either. I didn't know you had heard that quote before. That's not one I would have picked up on, actually. Not one of my I would have expected you to have heard. I don't I don't remember where I heard it, but I had heard that one before. Um, also, we're we're three for three on films full of smoking. It's true. I guess I just like uh, films from before the smoking ban took effect. <laughs> Never really thought about how uh, how many of those there are in my film catalog. The other thing you'll notice about Wes Anderson's work, though, just speaking on some of his common traits, is that the eccentric rich are a through are just completely and totally a through line in his works. In this case, in some of his others, though, it's actually people who want to be eccentric rich or want to portray themselves as eccentrically rich. Mm-hmm. And nobody is ever honest in a Wes Anderson film. I mean. Everybody is just completely ridiculous, over the top, lying all the time. It's it's absurd. Yeah, um, as entertaining as he sometimes was, I'd never, I wouldn't want to interact with that kid. Yeah, he somehow manages to make the most unlikable people relatable for the time you're watching the film. But if you actually knew them in real life, I mean, the the teacher Rosemary, she's the only one who's at all a mature adult in the entire film. <laughs> so you understand perfectly why she quits her job. What about the the uh, dean of the school? Is that what, that's who that guy was? Dr. So-and-so? Dr. Guggenheim, played by the absolutely spectacular Brian, Brian Cox. Um, but Guggenheim, I mean, he sits there and mocks Max Fisher to his face and blows up at him and, <laughs> and tries to get back at him. I mean, it's it's absurd. They're all children. But especially Bill Murray. I mean, Bill Murray is even less mature than the 15-year-old that he's hanging out with. Bill Murray was the the guy in this film where I'm like, that guy looks familiar. Who is he? And that then if I had to look so, it up. <laughs> makes me so sad. At first I thought he was the... Uh, um, God, what's that guy's name? Anyway, at first I thought he was somebody else who he turned out not to be. You're, you're making me so sad here, Ben. Now, the other thing I noticed... Um, that I recognized was that the the introduction or the opening the opening scene where it's going through all his activities um, was very uh, it reminded me of the music video to Sixteen Military Wives by The Decemberists. Um, and when I looked up the Wikipedia page on that video, it turns out uh, that video was made seven years later and actually took inspiration from uh, was directed by someone who draw draw stylistically from Wes Anderson. See, so now you have to love it by default. Uh, I have no idea what that is for the record, so you (laughs) you can can hold that over me as much as I hold movies over you. One, One of my favorite things about this film, though, that you will not have gotten is the fact that they are doing Serpico as a high school play. Huh? Serpico, you'll you'll see it at some point. Don't worry. <laughs> but it is it is one of the best jokes in the film, and it was probably completely and totally lost on you. 
<laughs> I don't even know which one you're talking about. It was the first show that they did where the nun was uh, listening to the earpiece and telling, giving directions. <laughs> they all start shooting each other, and there's the train going by outside on the stage and all kinds of ridiculous effects. <laughs> I mean, I would watch Max Fisher's plays all day long, even though the, the ridiculously elaborate effects that he uses and everything. I mean, it would be so distracting to a live audience, <laughs> but it's just wonderful all the same. Um, but yeah, you, like you're saying, everybody in the movie is a child. I had written down the line about, uh, yeah, the Geico, okay, the kid's name is Max, Max Fisher, that he was a, uh, an asshole, and then I wrote, ha, Bloom is too, and then I wrote, I'm surprised this kid lasted so long before getting kicked out of school, uh, and then the next thing I wrote down something about was when they were, to, like, pranking, well, not, not pranking, they were going far more than pranking each other, uh, but where, like, the Max, or the Bloom guy had crushed to the Max's bicycle, that whole scene, I was, that was entertaining. It is. It's pretty much the the core thing that people remember from this film is that sequence of Bill Murray and uh, Jason Schwartzman just completely pranking each other throughout this whole thing in the most mean-spirited way possible. <laughs> but all I can say is you do not want to screw with Bill Murray in a prank fight. I mean, he will he will own you. I liked like he didn't he didn't just like take the kid's bike. He could have used the wire cutters to like like touch, cut something on the bike. He cut the bike away. And then puts it, throws it on the ground, and then drives it over with his car. All while staring in the eyes of the Indian guy who passes by, <laughs> glaring at him. Just owning that completely. I mean, if nothing else, that man, in that moment, totally believes in what he's doing. <laughs> I mean, Bill Murray was just fantastic the whole way through. His, you know, Herman Bloom is, is just this character who absolutely gives no shits. Just this, this seminal moment for him where he's standing on the diving board drinking scotch and smoking. <laughs> and then just dives in and sits on the bottom of the pool as this little kid walks, you know, swims around him going, what are you doing, mister? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, really, I guess relating to that entire, that entire sequence, uh, when I was trying to figure out what, what was the arc of this movie, like I thought like the closest thing it could be is, you know, that, that kind of coming to age story, but the only character who kind of had that growth was was Max, who only grew up a little bit. He grew up just enough. Right, yeah. Just enough. Um, where he didn't, like, drop a tree on uh, Mr. Bloom or whoever. <laughs> I like the way he said, oh, it didn't, it didn't work. And then when he leaves, like, Mr. Heat, the Bloom guy goes over and touches the tree and it falls over. Would have flattened me like a pancake. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, there there is definitely an arc to the film, and that's in the sense of being a coming-of-age film where it's less about uh, maturing as much as it is developing some sense of empathy. He is mm -hmm. still the same basic person that he was. He still is getting by simply on pure force of personality, but he's at least starting to recognize that other people are more than just tools. Yeah, and he stopped – well, I mean, he, he didn't uh, drop a tree on Bill Murray – and then he stopped lying about his dad being a neurosurgeon. Which is always kind of hilarious to me because, I mean, the first scene you see him in, he's sitting there going, yeah, rich people do suck. Yeah, this guy's got it right. <laughs> that, <laughs> I love that opening, that, that scene, too, where he's taking notes on this guy in the hymnal. <laughs> it's fantastic. Or, I, what was it? I forget exactly what it was, but it was really, it was really great where he's just... Oh, uh, oh, this is, you know, exactly right. Oh, this guy, best guy ever? 
<laughs> that would be pretty much the best speaker to have at your school. Just a guy who's going to stand up there and smoke in the middle of the chapel and tell you all about how the rich kids next to you, you just need to beat them up now. <laughs> it's just incredible how, you know, uh, Herman Bloom's character just is completely horrified by the children he has. <laughs> he um, he has the he's that Dur- like Dudley Dursley kid from Harry Potter, but there there's two of them. The other the the Scottish bully, like initially, um, since he's a bully, I initially just didn't like him. But as soon as uh, Max invites him to be in the play, he immediately becomes like a really great character. Yeah, there's not a single bad character in the whole movie. Everybody, I mean, even characters who are being antagonistic or mean-spirited throughout the movie get some sort of a way of coming around at the end. And I just love the gym teacher at the very end, that, uh, or the, the coach of the baseball team at the very end talking about the play and just going, how'd they not get arrested? I mean, this is a flagrant safety violation. What do you think? Best play ever, man. <laughs> I mean, just the whole scene of that coach who had tried to go after him about building that aquarium on his baseball field before when he didn't even bother to get permission. What? I didn't catch whose baseball field did he build the aquarium next to at the end. Oh, it was Rushmore's. Okay. <laughs> I would assume he finally got permission at that point, though. Yeah. Or at least cut them the check for $6 million that Bloom wrote. Yeah. <laughs> But one of the other things I love about this film is just how completely unrealistic everything within Rushmore is, and all the colors are bright, and everybody's just completely absurd. And as soon as he gets to public school, it's all just dirty white tiles and pale green walls, and everybody's in muted colors and not even remotely paying attention to him. (laughs) Everybody else is, but he's still wearing his Rushmore Academy uniform. Yeah, he's still trying so hard. And then he brings that little bit of Rushmore into that world, and... It's just incredible. He tries so hard and gets tutoring and bumps his grades up to a C- minus or something. And yet the teacher gives him like the little wink and everything like, good job, kid. Our expectations for you are so low. <laughs> and a C- minus just seems so great to them now. Now I'm, I think when he, gets the, when he puts the aquarium next to the baseball diamond, I can't remember if he put it on the backside or the side where it's going to get hit, hit by baseballs now. I never paid attention to that detail before. I almost want to go back and check. But throughout the whole movie, all I can do is, every time I watch it, all I can think is, how does he get people to get a, to go along with his shit, you know? I mean, besides the fact that it looks like the most fun you'll ever have in your life. <laughs> I mean, if I was a 15-year-old, honestly, I would be just completely in love with this. <laughs> and, you know, as we said, it's just it's all about the little things in this movie, too. Like, you know, the uh, Dirk, the little kid that hangs out with him throughout the whole movie, that letter that he writes in crayon telling him all about the, the sex acts that he's that Bloom is doing with the with Rosemary. <laughs> I And at first I didn't know if he was making them up in the way that Max had made up the blowjob thing or the handjob or whatever. Uh, and I think in the like the very next scene after that, though, it's made very obvious that they are in a relationship. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that the details were completely made up by Dirk and just, you know, in that typical grammar school way of talking about sexual relationships when you don't understand them in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> it was 
the dialogue between all the different kids at Rushmore was so realistic to how kids talked about sex. <laughs> Everybody just trying to act like they're so much cooler than they are. I mean, you, you had it dead on when you talked about Max being the ultimate prototype for that kid that thinks he's such hot shit. <laughs> One other thing, I don't know if you noticed it, but um, Wes Anderson actually breaks a lot of staging rules in his films, and this is a, a great one for that, where he'll have characters walk up to each other and, and start talking. Like He'll show you know three or four moments of dead silence of this character just walking up a few steps to talk to somebody. Or, you know, the scene where Max is just constantly going between the different spots on the bleachers. And he doesn't cut away from any of it. He just, he shows this whole awkward movement of him starting a conversation and then going off to whatever he's doing. And then deciding, oh yes, let's continue this conversation. And it makes it the most bizarre and awkward moments ever. And yet it's so, com- it's completely intentional. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I wouldn't know the staging rules that he's supposedly breaking. Yeah, you you generally would just show cuts to avoid having to show the time lapse of them coming up. You just show, you know, them start to move, cut to them being there, and the audience's brain just fills in the rest of the movement. Mm-hmm. But with this, he shows, you know, Bill Murray just walks up the few steps to say, "Oh yes, thank you. I'll take a carrot." <laughs> I didn't. I guess that kind of, uh, like I said earlier, it felt like it was very tight and deliberate, but it also like that kind of gives it that space. It gives it a lot of the quirky qualities. But like taking the time to do that sort of thing gives it a little bit of like of space of like to breathe a little bit. And yet, you know, and he does know how to keep a frenetic pace when he wants to, because there were so many quick cuts in between different things where, you know, a song will start up and then all of a sudden it's a new scene and new scene, new scene, new scene. Suddenly, Max and Mr. Bloom are having a training montage. Yeah, I know, and it's fantastic because it's to this like very happy mandolin music. You know, so many of the so much of the music in this is just so not what you expect from a film soundtrack. <laughs> I think I had noticed the music, and unlike most films, I actually stuck around and watched the credits just to look at the the music credits and that it. With a lot, even though I noticed the music, I didn't notice as much music as they listed in the credits. And was his um, was his play at the end of the movie? Was that just a generic Vietnam thing, or was that actually a reference to some other, uh, like Vietnam film or something that I should have recognized? I will say I'm pretty sure that was just all Max Fisher's material. I don't think that one was based on anything in the way Serpico was. I mean, obviously, it's it's full of those tropes, but you know. Yeah, it's it's basically a montage of every Vietnam War film ever. So we can just take like Apocalypse Now and Platoon off the list right now. Because <laughs> you've basically seen it. And once again, yeah, with that scene of the, the play, I just love all the little moments like Bill Murray being the only one who just doesn't even bother using the safety glasses and earplugs. You know, everybody else is putting them on as soon as the fireworks start. And he just sort of sits there and pumps his fist during the ovation and... <laughs> it's just fantastic, especially because they mentioned earlier in the film that he was in Vietnam. So seeing his reactions to the play is just so great. Mm-hmm. That reminds me of the other the other way that Max kind of grew up was that he started treating the uh, the gang girl um, as a as a person, and as soon as he starts doing that, though she immediately now she claims that she's his girlfriend. Yeah, her little bit of, yes, I am. Find your own dance partner, Mr. Bloom. 
it's so great that he finally does recognize how awesome she is because she is so great. I mean, yeah, the scene where he's flying a kite with the uh, the dirt kid, and she shows up and with a like a like a model plane that she's flying around, and he finds out that she is every bit the bullshitter he is. <laughs> she's so perfect for him. I know. I think my favorite part about that, too, is that throughout the movie, he keeps on pretending he doesn't really know who she is and doesn't remember her name and everything like that. And then in that scene, as soon as he finally goes, okay, yeah, I I get you. We're on the same page here. Then all of a sudden, it's, Dirk, have you met Margaret Yang? And he completely knows her name and knows exactly what she is. (laughs) You know, knows exactly what she's all about and everything. It's just such a fantastic admission of just how much of an ass he is. And then she calls him out on it. Exactly. It's a much, uh, regardless of both of their, their like you know, equal flaws. It's a much healthier relationship than the crushing on the first grade school teacher. Yeah, that never ends well. <laughs> You're fifteen. And, and I do like also that the film doesn't make her out to be completely flawless. I mean, she has the the whole thing where she's sleeping in her dead husband's school, you know, childhood bedroom and things like that. There's definitely some issues that are going on with her. And yet she still manages to be so much more stable and mature than anybody else. <laughs> I mean, in any other film, she would be the one who is having serious issues and everybody's treating like they're not, you know, not able to function in society. And yet in this film, she is the responsible adult. Yeah. She got to be the, the straight man in so many interactions. Is this, is this fake blood? (laughs) Yes. Uh, Yes, it is. She could have licked it. Fake blood is actually pretty tasty. Usually mint. (laughs) Mint flavored. Why? Because you're probably going to get it in your mouth at some point, and it might as well taste okay. I think it's just, it's usually made out of corn syrup, and so I think that's just a way to make it have a little bit of flavor with it. Mm. We once got an actor high on fake blood. (laughs) Just sitting there having to drink gallons of it. (laughs) Another thing with this film that I always like is just how theatrical the actual film is. Um... You know, they do so much focus on the stage plays, and that's how, you know, he even got into Rushmore in the first place. And, you know, it's framed around all these different plays that he keeps on, you know, keeps on directing and performing in. And at the beginning, you know, at the beginning of the very, of the whole film, it has a curtain literally open to present it. And each act is presented by the curtain opening on the different months of the year and everything. It's just the whole film is put together in a very stage friendly way. Mm hmm. But get used to it, because we're going to see a whole lot more Wes Anderson, buddy. Yeah, yeah even though um, I don't watch a lot of movies, this, I think, is the third Wes Anderson movie that I've seen. What are the other two? Oh, it's like, does the Darjeeling Limited, is that one? Yes, yes it is. What about the other? I don't remember, so I'm doing the, uh, the exciting t- radio of looking it up on Wikipedia. <laughs> Did it involve a hotel 
or a ship? No, I was I was wrong. That's the that's the only one I've seen. Ah, uh, okay. Well, then get ready, buddy. So yeah, I'm up to two now. Why does why does the Wikipedia page have a giant matrix of actors that appear in Wes Anderson films? He reuses a lot of the same actors. I would assume that's probably why, though I've never looked at that page. <laughs> he is there. There are several directors that I really enjoy, and that you'll hopefully get to enjoy, who tend to reuse the same actors over and over and over again. And you can almost identify the different periods in their career based on the different actors that they're using over and over again. Wes Anderson definitely fits into that. It almost makes it even better when you start rewatching all of his films because you'll start noticing, oh, that's that guy in the background there. Oh, okay. I like how you, uh, in that statement, you implicitly assume that I'm going to rewatch any movie that you have me watch. What can I say? I have an air of confidence. <laughs> all right, I shoot, Max. I shoot from the hip, buddy. And that about does it for my notes. Do you have any other thoughts on Rushmore, Ben? I think that uh, about does it. What are you what are you gonna make me watch now? Well, I did manage to uh do the random number generator on our list, and I came out with one that I hope you will enjoy as much as all of society has since the seventies. And that film is The Godfather. Uh... Get ready for the best three hours of your life, Ben. God damn it. Can I've watched um I'm sure I've watched some uh, some takeoff on that, so I, I think I can wing it without actually watching the movie. Yeah, no. You get to watch Marlon Brando with cotton balls in his mouth. You're gonna make me an offer I can't it. refuse. What's up? You're gonna make me an offer I can't refuse. You damn well better not. <laughs> I just I'll just watch all the episodes of Futurama that have the Don Vod in, in them. Pretty much the same thing, right? I oh no no I I just I just can't Ben I just can't <laughs> keep it up and I'm gonna give you the clamps <laughs> all right well, that was Rushmore thanks everybody for listening thank you very much everybody. <laughs>